Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. We've got two readings this morning, both from the New Testament. And the first one is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 27. So this is Jesus instructing his followers. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying at a single hour to your life, And the second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the final chapter of Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections, <clears throat> sorry, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost for a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. 
If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thanks very much for reading. Nicole, if you were tempted to close 1 Corinthians 16 at that moment, please don't do that um, and keep it open in front of you. That would be a really good thing to do. Um, every time I hear a smash and a crash in the room next door, I just know that it's the sound of my littlest boy smashing into the wall. There you go. Um, it's freaky. Um, I meant to say before, um, I am uh, and Adele and the kids going on holidays uh, for a week. Um, and so I won't be around next Sunday, um, but uh, we're away for the next week. Um, we were, um, we're going, you know, as a good South Australian, we're going to Victor Harbour, um, you know, for a week just to do our bit. And uh, we were meant to be going to Victor Harbour actually with um, a really good friend of ours from Sydney, Steph, um, one of our best sort of mates. Um, but obviously with the COVID restrictions in Sydney and things going on there, she is unable to join us. So that's kind of disappointing for us. But we're going to make the best of it um, either way. Um, what I want you to do, in light of my little sharing there, I want you to turn to the person next to you and like, share maybe, this might be painful for some of us, share maybe you know, where you had plans to travel somewhere or plans to have someone come over and the dreaded coronavirus has got in the way of it. Um, have a chat to the person next to you. When has something like that happened to you recently where you wanted to go somewhere, you had plans, but they were stopped because of the COVID-19. Have a quick chat to the person next to you um, if you're up for it. Go for it. We can, uh, we can continue our conversations about plans that didn't happen, um, perhaps over lunch in a moment's time. But let me pray um, as we come to God's word. Uh, what I asked you to do just then may make sense in a few moments' time. But or it may not, but we'll see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for all the good things you give us. We thank you and praise you, especially for your son, the Lord Jesus. Uh, we thank you for life and life to the full in Christ. Father, we thank you for Jesus' sin-bearing death and his death-crushing resurrection. We pray, Father, now as we turn to 1 Corinthians 16, uh, Father, which in light of 1 Corinthians 15 seems so ordinary, after spending the last three weeks together in 1 Corinthians 15 and where we've been reminded of and taught about and filled with hope for our own resurrection because of Jesus' resurrection and life forever in the new creation. We kind of now move, Lord, in your word from what is sublime to ordinary uh, as we seek to work out what it looks like to live out our hope in the Lord Jesus and his resurrection and ours. So Father, we pray this morning as we look at your word, would you by your spirit uh, help us to see Jesus. Father, help us to hear Jesus. Father, help us to love Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Last week, I, last week I, I finally finished reading the book Dominion by Tom Holland. I've shared a bit about Dominion ages ago and I was getting close to the end of this massive book Dominion and then like other books got in the way. But I, I finally got to the, um, yeah, this book, Dominion, and I'll show you a picture of Tom Holland. There he is, that's Tom Holland. He's the author of uh, Dominion. It took me a while to get to the end of this book, but it was, it was really worth it. Um, now, Tom Holland wouldn't consider himself a Christian, 
Um, He's a professional historian who wrote this book, Dominion, which basically is about the shaping of the Western world, how we've come to be kind of the Western world that we are. Um, He's a historian, but he he decided after years and years and years and years of work, of researching, of thinking and writing and teaching and researching and thinking and writing, he wanted to know and understand where his values came from. Um, You know, where does compassion come from in the West? Where does that come from? Where does the idea of equality between men and women come from? Where does equality um, come from in regards to, you know, creed or irrespective of, of color, nationality, socioeconomic status, religion, gender? Where does all that come from? Holland's particular speciality is the history and the culture of Rome and Greece, of the Greco-Roman world. And he goes, pretty sure it doesn't come from there. That's his conclusion. Um, He did his research, he wrote up the book Dominion, and his conclusion is pretty clear. Things like compassion, things like equality come from Christianity. He says that the events of Easter in particular, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the pivot of history around which everything kind of turns. It's very striking. In fact, he writes this, Christianity is the most influential framework for making sense of human existence that has ever existed. It's quite a statement, isn't it? Christianity is the most influential framework for making sense of human existence that has ever existed. Now, having finished the book, I don't know if you do this as well, but I look around to see what other people thought of the book as well. You know, like, am I on track thinking this is a good book? Um, So I look around and go, oh yeah, some other people think it's good as well. Phew, you know, like, anyway, I looked at, you know, some reviews and what people had sort of thought about it. I came across a one hour debate between Tom Holland and this guy coming up on the screen. There you go, Anthony Grayling, or better known as AC Grayling on this particular issue. So basically, Holland argues that all of our Western values come from Christianity, whereas A.C. Grayling goes, no, 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 no. They came from ancient Greece. That's what he thinks. However, Grayling does concede two things that were distinctive to the early church. One, the early church was radical in giving away their money. And secondly, The early church, the Christians who formed the early church, tended to lack anxiety because they believed that their future was in God's hands and they looked forward to the resurrection. So Grayling concedes those two things. The early church was radically generous with their money and they lacked anxiety. They didn't worry as much because they knew they were in God's hands and they were looking forward to the future resurrection. It's interesting, it made me think about a, a quote that I came across ages ago. I can't remember which book it is, maybe you can tell me. Um, it was by Tim Keller, um, where he was also reflecting on the early church as well, and he says this, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. How's that? There you go. Probably would be a good word, right, to the Corinthians back as we've looked at them over the last sort of 20-odd weeks. Um, 
But you can watch this debate actually by um, Grayling and Holland online. It goes through about an hour. Um, I'm, you know, as you can imagine, kind of persuaded by Tom Holland more than I am by AC Grayling. But Holland says definitively that the events of the first Easter, he's not a Christian, right, but he sees that completely change things, like we're revolutionary. A.C. Grayling, though, he goes, no, you've overstated the case, but the early church did, with their belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus, they lived with less worry, they were radically generous with their money. And you're wondering, why, why are you telling me this, Jacko? Like, why are you saying this this morning? Well, I mentioned this this morning because 1 Corinthians chapter 16 is all about the very practical difference that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and our future resurrection makes to our daily lives, to how we use our money, how we plan things and about our relationships. If you're just joining us today, right, we have spent the last three weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that magnificent chapter all about the resurrection of Jesus and how Jesus' resurrection, his bodily resurrection from the grave, guarantees our own bodily resurrection from the grave if we trust in him, in the Lord Jesus. That one day we will be with Jesus and with all the redeemed in a new creation, a physical, more wonderful, truer, better, sinless and spectacular world that will never end. And we spent quite some time in that chapter because it's worth spending quite some time in that chapter. And 1 Corinthians 15 ended like this, verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The resurrection guarantees that anything we do for Jesus in this life will be rewarded in the next. That's the guarantee. So very practically, what are some of the ways we should labour for the Lord, confident of the resurrection to come? Well, the passage this morning, this is what we're going to do this morning, provides at least three ways. Uh, this is what we're going to look at. It, tells us, it informs us that in light of the resurrection, we had a call, we're called to give generously, plan humbly, Welcome graciously. So like I said, we've gone from chapter 15, which is just absolutely sublime, to now kind of pretty ordinary, right? What are the things we should do as God's people in light of the resurrection to come? Give generously, plan humbly, welcome graciously. Firstly then, verses one to four, give generously. Verses one to four. Now the caveat here, like I'm conscious that there may be some people here today who are like, you may not be trusting in the Lord Jesus yet, you may not be familiar with church, but like every time you've gone to church, whenever you've gone to church, they always talk about money. Like here we go again, the church is always after people's money. But I want you to bear in mind, right? A.C. Grayling isn't a Christian, and yet he was struck by the generosity of the early church. It was unprecedented, it was radical. It was a distinct mark of how a Christian lived when they'd encountered the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's an example of what people do if they have a certain future hope. Okay, look with me at chapter 16 and verse one. Paul says, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. 
We stop there for a second. I read one commentary on this, right, by one of the really old church fathers, probably around 200, 300 AD, just a couple of hundred years after Jesus was you know, on planet Earth. Um, one, of the original, one of these commentators goes, the reason why Paul says do what the Galatian churches do, because the church at Corinth, he believed, was so prideful and thought they were the best Christians on the planet, that they thought, well, we're not gonna be outdone by anyone else, and so Paul sort of drops in, hey, the Galatians are really generous, why don't you do it as well? But I don't think that's exactly what's going on here, but I thought that was interesting. Um, there is nothing unique here though, right? Like this is what Paul is telling you to the Corinthians. This is what he's been telling other churches to do, the churches in Galatia and Turkey to do. This is just normal, Make, putting, away, putting aside money for this particular collection. There is to be a collection for the Lord's people. Um, it's not detailed here, but in another letter, 2 Corinthians, in chapters eight and nine, Paul goes on to talk more about what this collection actually is. You see, there was a famine in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, and, and Paul calls on Gentile Christians, so non-Jewish Christians, who've come to know the grace of God, to dig deep into their wallets, deep into their reserves, to support Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem who were doing it tough. It was basically Paul saying, you know, like, as a sign of solidarity, give to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem because they're doing it tough, there's a famine. That's really what's taking place. Um, lots of historians will say, actually, this was probably the first ever recorded, ever known kind of global big aid project that ever happened in the world. This collection for the suffering Christians back in Jerusalem. Now, what does Paul suggest should happen, right? Well, three little things when he's talking about giving, collecting, he says the, the giving should be regular, it should be proportionate, and it should be well-administered. Regular, proportionate, well-administered. So verse two, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Then, verse three, when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So this giving is meant to be regular. Paul says, set it aside on the first day of the week, would have been Sunday for them, hand some over to the treasurer at the church at Corinth so that when I come, Paul's like, what I don't want to happen when I come is that I need to collect money from certain people and have an awkward kind of conversation with those people. You know, people, you know, might get a little bit embarrassing. So where's your money? Where's your, you know, you should have set it aside. You know, he basically wants to avoid that sort of panic giving you know that when someone knocks on your door, you know, and they sort of knock on your door and say, hey, we're here for this charity, and you're going, oh yeah, I guess I should, we probably should give some money. Like he wants to avoid that. He says, I want you to plan, I want you to be regular. It's the first little principle. And the second is that the giving should be proportionate in keeping with your income. There's little doubt here, right, for Paul, a Jewish scholar, that Paul would have in the back of his head the concept of, of tithing, the Old Testament principle of giving 10% of your income. He would have known that. But the New Testament and Paul, as one writer of the New Testament, goes further than that. So 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, he, he, where he talks about giving, he says giving should be generous, should be sacrificial, it should be cheerful. It should be a pleasure to give. 
So in one sense, right, it's quite simple and easy to give 10%. I don't know, just write it off as like a 10% tax to the Lord. But that's not how Christians think because it's not what the New Testament says. Christian giving should be generous, sacrificial and cheerful. If you neglect to give, that's a fail. If you give resentfully, that's a fail. If you give meanly, that's a fail. Now it should be regular, cheerful, sacrificial, and, and generous. But how is it that Christians, right, can give cheerfully without resentment? Generously, not meanly. Well, I don't know. If you think back to lockdown last year, and even like the threat of lockdown just recently, you know, when we were like, I remember it was a, you know, a couple of weeks ago when we sort of were, you know, restrictions and then thinking, oh, we might go into lockdown. I was in a meeting um, one morning on the morning where we, there was a threat of going into lockdown here in Adelaide. And I went into this meeting and this person, I walked into the lobby and this person I was meeting met me down there and we were going upstairs and he goes, oh, I won't shake your hand because we're about to go into lockdown. I'm like, what do you mean we're about to go into lockdown? Oh, you know, yeah, you know, haven't you heard? There's all these people running around in Norwood, you know, rah, rah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't heard about this at all. So anyway, as I was going home after the meeting, I went to Chanel's, which is a fruit and veg and butcher and baker down here in Prospect, with half of Adelaide already, there already, like scrambling around for bits and pieces. I mean, I was just there going, I just need some, you know, I just need some ham. I'm not here to scramble around. I'm fully in control, you know, like... I don't know if you remember like lockdown last year. Remember lockdown last year? It was absolute mayhem in the shops, right? Not a loo roll, not a packet of pasta left on the shelves, no tin tomatoes. You know, the mere purchase of a tin of tuna around this time last year, you'd be leaping for joy in aisle four at Coles, right? It was incredible. We're a bit calmer now. But let's say, right, you know, let's say you observed in your street someone setting up a big table outside their house on the nature strip, outside their home, and they put on a sign on the, you know, and there was, they put on a sign saying, this is all the food in our house, please take it, feel free. And there's an abundance of meat and vegetables and pasta and tin tomatoes and tuna and even loo paper, you know, and there's this, it's everywhere. And everyone in the street comes over and they're having a look around. This looks amazing. And they start grabbing stuff and taking it off the table and taking it home. And you watch on and you go, this is extraordinary. Why would people give away all their food? Eventually the crowd disperses and the last tin of spam and the last jar of, I don't know, kohlrabi cabbage goes. And you go up to the owner of the house and you ask the owner of the house, like, how can you be so generous? I mean, how can you be so even reckless in giving all this stuff away? And the lady says it's quite easy, to be honest. My husband, he's a delivery driver with Coles. And when he finishes after his day, he brings to the house a van that is loaded with food, you know, and, and we've got everything we need. We know we can give stuff away because we know that a vast amount of food is coming. Oh, you say, I guess it's easy to be generous when you know riches are just about to arrive. And that's how the Christian lives. The Christian, we can be generous with our money, generous with our possessions, generous with our time now because we know that riches will arrive when we arrive in God's new creation. That hope of where we're going radically impacts our use of money and our resources that we have here and now. We can be generous. We can give without resentment. We can give generously. 
That's the first little thing that people who believe in the resurrection, who live out the resurrection, do. They give generously. Let's keep moving on. Secondly, um, God's people plan humbly, verses five through to nine. God's people plan humbly. Now, this may not seem the most exciting thing to think about, but there are some important principles here. Verse five, uh, Paul says, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Very simply put, Paul makes plans, but he knows he's in God's hands. Paul makes plans, but he knows he's in God's hands. Things only happen if the Lord permits them to happen. And perhaps we feel this more acutely than ever. COVID-19, lockdowns, restrictions have made, in many cases, sort of a mockery of our planning. Perhaps more than any other time in our lives, we've come to recognise this truth. A truth that the Apostle James expresses really well in chapter 4, verse 13 of his letter. Listen to this. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So Paul knows, right? He is in God's hands and yet he still makes plans, right? And that's the wise way of living. You want both. Make plans knowing all the time God is in control and you're in his hands. That's the principle. And, and here's a slightly fatuous illustration to help us understand this. Um, it's school holidays, um, so the other night, Friday night, I took Stella, Sebastian and Fletcher to Latitude um, out on, main, on Northeast Road. Um, and uh, you know, while I was trying to handle Fletcher in the ball pit, um, I'm also trying to be like, I'm trying to be like, you know, a dad in two places. It's quite hard to do that, right? So Fletcher's in the ball pit and I've got Stella and Sebastian going, dad, dad, can we go to the rock climbing wall? Can we go to the rock climbing wall? I'm like, yes, eventually. You know, anyway, we got to the rock climbing wall eventually. And I think it's a little bit like, you know, this idea that we're, uh, we were in God's hands, but we are called to make plans is a little bit like rock climbing. So, you know, finally got Sebastian and Stella into their like rock climbing sort of gear, which is like, it's you need a, like a degree in something to get into those things, right? But anyway, they're in those things and up they go up the wall. You know, and, and Stella's halfway up the wall and she looks at me and goes like she's totally secure in this harness, right? She can't die. Well, maybe she could, but she can't really. And she's up there and she's like going, Dad, I'm stuck. I can't go any higher. And I'm like, you know, I'm, like, I'm the dad going, yes, you can. You're my daughter. You can go higher. You know, she's going, I can't reach that one. I said, Stella, you can Go for it, be ambitious. And she's like, I can't do it. Get up there, you know, like, you know. And, um, and then she, you know, she reaches for that thing and then boom, she falls, right? And she smacks into the wall. But she's a little bit hurt, but she's totally safe, right? The harness caught her. She had a go, she reached out, she was ambitious with a little bit of coaxing from her dad, but she, you know, she had a go. But apart from a little bit of bump on the way down, it caught her. 
To be like us as Christians, brothers and sisters, we as Christians can take risks. Like I'm not calling us to take like totally reckless risks, but we can take risks. We can be ambitious for Jesus. We can try something, knowing that if it doesn't kind of happen very well, if it doesn't work out totally well, the harness will catch us. It might hurt a bit, but nothing calamitous can happen because we're in the Lord's hands. It's a fabulous truth, right, that liberates us from anxiety and indecision and beating ourselves up if something doesn't go very well. It liberates us from pride as well because we know that anything that does go well, things that succeed, well, God has allowed that to happen. He's given it to us. Knowing that we're in God's hands means we can make grand plans without fear and without pride. And so Paul knows that, so he plans. What shapes Paul's plans? Have a look at what shapes Paul's plans in verse 8. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work is open to me, and there are many who oppose me. Paul says, I want to make the most of my life in service of the Lord. And it seems as an opportunity, he says, opening up to tell people about Jesus, to teach the Bible. He says, I'm going to grab hold of that. A door is open. Yep, there's opposition, he says. You know, opposition and opportunities often go hand in hand. Um, it's kind of like the whole book of Acts, right, that we looked at a little while ago. Every time there's a sort of an open door, it's op- op- usually open because of opposition. And when they arrive at the new place, there's more opposition and more opportunity. They often go hand in hand. But Paul says there are no certainties in life. We're all dependent on the Lord. And he knows, though, verse 58 of chapter 15, he knows that his labour in the Lord is not in vain. And so he says, I'll labour for Jesus. And those opportunities, that'll drive my decision making. Your question's like, what can I achieve for the Lord? How can I be ambitious for him? Knowing that if things go slightly wrong, I'm still in God's hands, I'll still be with him in glory. So plan humbly and make plans that serve Jesus. In light of the resurrection, God's people give generously, they plan humbly, even ambitiously, and thirdly, they welcome graciously. Uh, Verse 10, check it out. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now, if you read through, which we have this letter from the beginning, uh, this letter from Paul to the church at Corinth, about 54, 55 AD, you find that the people in the church at Corinth, they're a proud people. And they had a way of treating some people with contempt. They had a, they had a contempt for sex and, and how they're called to use their bodies. They had contempt for God's design for marriage. Uh, but they had contempt for various kinds of people. So chapter 8, verses 11 to 12, they treated with contempt people who had a tender conscience. 
In chapter 11, the wealthy were showing contempt towards the poor. They wanted to bring their social status that was outside the church sort of into the Christian gathering. And Paul says you can't do that. The saving message of Jesus Christ humbles all of us to the same level. All of us because our sin and our selfishness deserve God's rejection and his wrath. But Jesus came so that anybody from any background, any gender, any ethnicity, any colour, any socioeconomic status, anyone, no matter how wicked they've been, when they put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they can know that he has died for their sins, they can know forgiveness, and they put their trust in him, they can know they will be raised forever with Christ to join him in the new creation. See, the message of the cross which Paul just went on and on and on and on about in those first opening chapters, is a leveler. Jesus is the only one who can rescue sinners, and that changes us. If you know that, and Paul is writing to Christians, he says, come on, you cannot look down on other people when we've all been saved in the same way. Don't show contempt. This is also what Tom Holland realised in his book, Dominion. That Jesus' death was for everyone. For slaves, for tanners, for those who worked down the ancient mines in horrible conditions. This is what makes Christianity so radical. Jesus treats all people as equal, on an equal plane. It's extraordinary. So Paul says, welcome Timothy. Welcome Timothy. You may not like him, very much, but he's carrying on the work of the Lord, so honour him. So give generously, plan humbly, welcome graciously. The question is, how can you do all these things? Well, Paul concludes this way, you can love in the strength that the Lord Jesus himself provides. Verses 13 and 14. You get these five kind of staccato commands. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 13 to 14. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Be on your guard, Paul says, to the Corinthians in the first century, to you and me today if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be on your guard. I think what Paul says here, be on your guard against unworthy behaviour. Behaviour in the church that is not in in, in a way that is is worthy of the calling of the Christian. Be on your guard against dodgy doctrine. Be on your guard against favouritism, against contempt, against pride. They're the issues that have come up in this letter. Be on your guard against those things. And he says, stand firm in the faith. Be courageous, be strong. Because I think to live in this world for the Lord Jesus Christ is challenging, it's hard. It's not for the coward. We will need to stand up in the face of growing opposition as followers of Jesus. Being a Christian will provide more and more. It will require bravery and courage to stand firm on what we know to be true. Bravery and courage to stand with Jesus in the face of opposition. And the last command really summarises the whole letter. Do everything in love. 
do everything in love. If chapter 13 of Paul's letter to the Corinthians is like the, one of the key chapters, then this is like the key command, right? Do everything in love. Again, John Chrysostom, who was an ancient Christian and a, and a commentator, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, writes this, if love had been present, the Corinthians would not have been puffed up. They would not have divided into factions. They would not have gone to the law before pagans or indeed at all. If there had been love in the church, that notorious person would not have taken his father's wife. They would not have looked down on their brothers and sisters and they would not have boasted about their spiritual gifts. Paul says, do everything in love because that's how they've been treated. And you and I can do everything in love because of the way we have been treated by God. We can do everything in love, confident in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the one who has given to us generously. He's given his life. He's taken the punishment the abandonment that we deserved, the wrath that we deserved on himself. He has given so generously. Jesus is also the one who, who planned humbly. Well, certainly he humbled himself to his father's will in the garden, even unto death on a cross. And Jesus is the one who welcomes graciously, even me, even you no matter what we've done. You see, Christian love is no mere abstract theory. It's not a disembodied, unengaged cheerfulness. Christian love calls us not to desert, but to stand guard. Not to give up, but to stand firm. Not to avoid conflict, but to defend truth and courage. And most of all, Christian love is about loving the Christ who loved us perfectly, who laid down his life, who gave generously, who planned humbly, who welcomes graciously. And if you understand these things and you're confident in the hope of the resurrection, we too can welcome graciously, give graciously, plan humbly, be ambitious, because this is how we've been treated. So brothers and sisters, let's be a people who know the Lord Jesus Christ and know of God's great love for us, who don't just know we're forgiven, but who also know that we are destined for the new creation where we will enjoy riches beyond measure. And that allows us to be generous. That allows us to plan and be ambitious. It also allows us to welcome. Let me lead us in prayer. As we wrap up, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus again. Father, we thank you for his generosity towards us. Thank you that he gave his life for us. Thank you that he took upon himself the punishment that we deserved so that we 
unrighteous men and women could be righteous. Father, help us to be people who know your love deeply, who know the gospel, not just in our heads and our hearts, but deep in our bones. And so seek to find ways, Lord, to not just serve here in church, but serve beyond these walls in making Christ known. And Father, help us to be a church, Father, who welcomes people graciously. Father, knowing that even we have been welcomed into your family through faith in your Son. And Father, we pray that we would be like the early church who were radically generous with their money, generous with their possessions, and Father, a people who were perhaps less anxious than other people in the world because we know of where we're going. So Father, help us to love. Help us to love you with the overflow being love for all people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.